If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Throughout her lifetime, Henrietta Maria was known as a popish brat of France and the wife who wore the breeches. But as the Queen of Charles I, her personality, patronage and faith were directly in the firing line of the parliamentarian propaganda machine. Which raises the question, how much was any of it really true? To find out more, Emily Briffitt spoke to Leander Delisle, who's written a new biography busting some myths surrounding the reviled Stuart Queen. Hi, Leander. Thank you for taking the time for chatting to me today. Hello. It's great to be on. Today, we're going to be discussing your new book, Henrietta Maria, Conspirator, Warrator, Phoenix Queen. And we're going to be busting some myths surrounding her. But first of all, can you introduce us to her? Who was Henrietta Maria? Well, uh, she was a French princess, the daughter of the great Henry IV of France, um, one of France's great warrior kings, and um, Marie de Medici. And she married our king, Charles I of England, Scotland and Ireland. And uh, he, of course, was the Civil War king who, you know, famously or infamously uh, lost the Civil War and had his head chopped off. And uh, she was his wife and the mother of his children, including the future Charles II and indeed the future James II. I'm going to dive into the end here a little bit because a really important part in her story that we need to address up front is her legacy. How has Henrietta Maria been seen through history? Well, she is probably the most reviled consort to have had worn the crown of the three kingdoms. Um, She is really still the victim of the parliamentary propaganda of the period, She's been described, or she was described at her lifetime as, you know, that popish brat of France, a sort of whore. She was supposed to have worn the breeches in the marriage. And ever since, she's been perceived as the classic witch Eve, seducing her husband into evil. How did she come to have this legacy? Well, I think, uh, obviously, um, its history is written by the victors, and um, the victors were ultimately uh, the, I mean, although the, the, the royalists uh, were returned, I mean, we had the king in Charles, Charles II uh, came back to the throne after the protectorate and after the death of Oliver Cromwell. Nevertheless, 
Um, the um, what the parliamentarians fought for eventually, you know, really won. So, and I think uh, one of our great national myths is that English Protestantism has played a role in the creation of English uh, democracy and indeed British democracy. And therefore, being a Catholic, uh, she is associated with Charles's authoritarianism and indeed is partially blamed for his authoritarianism. How did Henrietta Maria's legacy compare to that of Charles I's? I think that in some ways, Henrietta Maria's legacy helped shape that of Charles I because to ensure that she stayed in the role of Eve, the seductress, corrupting him into evil and so forth, uh, Charles, of course, had to be perceived as weaker and weaker and weaker. And so one of the sort of myths that's built up about Charles is, is that he was some kind of wimp and a fop. And with both of them, you have uh, sort of things that were sort of truth, truths or quotations taken out of context. So we hear um, the fact was that Charles uh, was a sickly child. He had very weak legs as a child. Uh, but then it sort of suggested that he was also a sort of weak and feeble adult. And we don't hear so much about the fact he was actually an extremely athletic um, and physically strong adult. So I'd like to move on from her legacy and return to Henrietta herself. How much do we actually know about her character and how much can we actually access her voice? Well, we can access her voice, actually. Um, She was extremely vocal and very funny, um, which is one of the things I particularly uh, like about her. I mean, she... We, we have many, many letters uh, she, she wrote, uh, particularly uh, during the Civil War. Um, and also we have descriptions of her uh, by those who knew her. Um, and, I, and I quote some that haven't, haven't been used before. And um, she comes across very much as someone who's um, uh, very affectionate, uh, very passionate. Uh, she's kind to uh, sort of lowly servants um, but she can be, you know, she can be quite naughty in a way. She's funny. So, and, she, and she turns all sorts of really very grim situations into jokes. So at one point, uh, she, you know, she goes out to sea um, on her way back from Holland to England. And there's most horrendous storms. I mean, really horrendous. They go on for days and days. And two of the ships and her fleet, you know, sink. People die. Uh, and she and her ladies think, you know, they may well die. And some of her ladies are so frightened that they start confessing their sins out loud. And uh, so when she gets back to shore, um, she makes jokes about this. And she sort of says, ha ha, I know what you said. You did this, you know, and so forth. Um, and um, she's often making jokes about, about herself as well, against herself, when she's in some quite difficult and even horrendous situations. What sources actually tell us about her life? What sources do we have about her? We have myriad sources, really, of all sorts and kinds. Um, so um, we have physical evidence that's left, um, you know, the, of buildings that she built. She was her mother was a, was one of the greatest patrons of architecture in Europe in her time, and you know, and and Henrietta Maria was very much her daughter, and uh, so she left uh, a legacy in that respect. Uh, she was a collector of art, um, and um, and. She was particularly keen on modern art, um, and so so there's that. And of course, we have the images of her, many images of her, many painted by Van Dyck. But there are, are, are others done by other artists as well. Well, both uh, French um, and and um, Dutch and English and all sorts. 
Uh, and then there are her, her letters. Um, and as I said, the letters of others and descriptions of others. So we've actually, that's one of the nice things about the 17th century. You can really get a rounded picture. And from all sorts of different, not just from people in England and Scotland, but also people in France, of course, which gives a slightly different perspective. And they saw her much more positively. Um, so they saw her as very much her father's daughter. They said that uh, Marie de Medici's children, she was the most like her father, the great Cat, Henry IV. Um, and um, that they saw her as, as incredibly brave. I don't think anyone would have denied her courage, mind you. Um, and... And as a sort of almost as a sort of martyr, really, um, for her, her her faith in the in the way that she was made to suffer for it, um, and in her support for her husband, they saw her as a very remarkable woman, and also respected very much her political and diplomatic acumen. I'd like to talk about her skills and roles a little bit later on, but to start from the very beginning, what sort of society was Henrietta Maria born into? Oh, um, in France, I think I think the French court um, was very gay, great fun, um, and it was actually quite feminine um, in the sense that, well, of course, her, her mother was regent of was a, was you know, re, was regent of France, was ruling France for much of her childhood, which would have given her a very particular perspective on what women were able to do. And um, the French, uh, you know, were quite sort of open to the having women on stage um, in a way the English were not and, and women speaking and also playing male roles. Uh, and so that gave her a sense of that, that a woman um, could, you know, have a voice and should have a voice. Um, it was also, I think, it's also important to remember that her father and indeed her her mother um, introduced and then uh, confirmed uh, the Edict of Nantes under which uh, Protestants were given full uh, religious rights in France. And so she also came from a society where you could be a Catholic and practice your faith and you could be a Protestant and practice your faith, which was very, very different from England. Um, and so I think that legacy was important. And, and, and of course, what was also very important to her, I think, particularly when she married Charles, was the fact that her father had uh, very much believed uh, that you could and should form alliances with Protestant powers and Protestant nations uh, against uh, the, their great rivals, the Catholic Habsburgs. And when she married, I think she saw her marriage very much in this tradition of an alliance with the Protestant power uh, aimed against the Catholic Habsburgs. Did this provide her with a sense of religious tolerance more widely? Well, when she arrived in, in England, on her indeed on the night that her, her marriage was consummated, she was asked, can you stand a Huguenot, a Huguenot being a French Protestant? And she said, well, was not my father one? Because her father had been a, a Protestant in his youth and had uh, converted. Her doctor, who was in charge of caring for her life, uh, was a Protestant. Uh, later on, her dearest and closest friends uh, were um, Protestants. And not only Protestants, they were um, leaders of the um, Puritan-inclined faction at court uh, because you know, they shared... Uh, the same kind of foreign policy objectives, which was uh, uh, aggression really towards the Habsburgs. And so, yes, I think um, she did have a, a tolerant view in that respect. And uh, she rather hoped 
that she would be able to encourage uh, the um, British and her husband, indeed, who persecuted Catholics, to offer a British Catholics of something similar to the Edict of Nantes. You mentioned earlier that she was condemned in her lifetime as the Popish Brat of France. But could you tell us about her public and private religious standpoint? Well, that's a very interesting question. So her public standpoint was that she um, understood that um, she needed to try and uh, protect British Catholics who were persecuted and she needed to set an example to them and also to Protestants who might potentially convert as a result of her example. So she was very careful to, for example, make sure she attended the Catholic Mass wherever she was, whether they were travelling around the countryside, she would have Mass in a cottage or wherever, wherever, um, because Catholics were not permitted you know, the mass, they were given heavy fines if they did not attend um, um, Church of England services. And so that was a kind of public position. And and she did, there were several sort of examples of her doing that. Um, And then when she was permitted, a sort of a chapel was built for her at Somerset House. She used that as a kind of display case for the sort of Baroque mass, which was sort of incredible, with sort of music and lights and all sorts of things going on, um, and was a very sort of rich form of theatre as well as a spiritual experience. And uh, this was a means, she hoped, of encouraging uh, converts. So that was a sort of public side, I suppose. Um, the private side had sort of different aspects. She read spiritual books um, about the life of Christ Um, I suppose, which she wanted to encourage a sort of inner humility. So on the one hand, she was very aware that she was a queen, the daughter of a king, the wife of a king, uh, the mother of a future king, and later the mother of a king. Um, But uh, that she was just, as she said herself, just a human being. And um, she wanted to look at sort of Christ's life, and she read about him every day, and the sort of suffering he had endured. And I suppose there there was a side of her that that wanted exactly to pursue sort of hum- Christian humility. Henrietta Maria has often been accused of trying to turn Charles Catholic. How much truth actually really lies in this? Or was this a bit of a publicity stunt? There's no truth in it at all. And if you think about it, it's a completely idiotic thing for people to say, because, you know, he <laughs> Charles I is a martyr of the Church of England. Can you be a, a Church of England martyr, a Protestant martyr and a Catholic? I mean, surely you're either one or the other. It's sort of idiotic and it sort of, it it just shows how ingrained our prejudices are against her and how ridiculous they are. So she arrives in England, age 15. Okay, so she's a child. Um, Charles I is a man of 25. He is already extremely attached to his father's theories of divine right kingship. At the heart of this is the denial of papal authority, okay, which comes from the time of Henry VIII. So Charles I believes that he has the right to rule men and women in Britain, his subjects, their bodies, but also their souls. And he believes that they should worship as he does. And this certainly doesn't mean as Catholics. Charles persecutes Catholics throughout his reign, Henrietta Maria manages to mitigate this persecution in the 1630s. So you actually don't have 
uh, people being hung, drawn and quartered for their religion for a few brief years. But he goes on, you know, giving heavy fines for them not going to Church of England services. And indeed, the fines are heavier in the 1630s even than they were in the 1620s. When he dies, when he is on the scaffold, what does he do? He stands up there and he reiterates his belief in divine right kingship. And he says he is willing to die for the Church of England as his father left it. So there we have it. He is the same man when he dies as as he was when she married him. So I think that myth really needs to be put to bed and I hope my book will do it. Are the rumours true that Henrietta Maria was unfaithful to Charles? And is it true that she married Henry German? No, it's not true. Um, interestingly, um, some people think, um, I mean, I, I, know, I know that there's one person I remember seeing on television saying that, that, oh, yes, that she was only ever said that she had an affair with Henry German. She was never linked to anybody else. And, you know, this is supposed to support this man's view that she had an affair with Henry German and married him. Uh, in fact, she was linked to m- many men. At least, I can think of at least three others that she was um, constantly being uh, linked to, um, one of whom became a priest but began life um, as, as a sort of Calvinist, really. Um, but she didn't have an affair with any of these uh, men. Um, and she certainly did not marry Henry German, it was said, I mean, there were rumours at the time, and indeed the diarist Samuel Pepys reports reports on them, uh, and, it, and even said that one of Charles II's mistresses was, 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 their, was their daughter. Um, the fact is that, as I was saying, after Charles's death, she became much more um, pious and, and, much, and, and, and really wanted the people much more, wanted the people around her to convert and to become Catholics. Henry German never became a Catholic. So I don't know, I can't understand why people think it's likely that she's going to marry um, a, a Protestant courtier who wasn't royal. She had very strict views on that and um, why she would have wanted to diminish herself by um, marrying um, a sort of a commoner. I, I, I can't I can't imagine why people think for a second um, there'd have been anything in it for her. Maybe they think, you know, she was desperate for some mad and exciting sex life when she was, you know, a post-menopausal um, and broken-hearted woman. But um, I, I personally think that's unlikely. And she could hardly take him into the convent with her, where she retreated quite often in her in her older age. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... And so sometimes she's sort of perceived as, she, as if she's just some sort of sad woman dressed in black. But actually, you need to think of it more like Princess of Wales after her divorce. You know, it's a very powerful, moving image. Diana Princess of Wales projected, again, this image of, you know, a suffering woman, but also a very sort of glamorous woman that understood the suffering of others all around her. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. To continue on about Henrietta, Maria and Charles, what was her relationship actually like? I think there must have been many times in her life when she really, really, really wished she was wearing the britches. And indeed, there were many times when other people wished she was wearing the britches as well. Um, No, she didn't. Um, I think there were, I think things changed in her marriage and her relationship with Charles uh, very much after the uh, Bishop's Wars um, when he lost against the Scots when they rebelled, because they, so, like I said earlier, Charles wanted his subjects to worship as he did. Um, and he had a particular um, brand of um, Protestantism that he wanted to encourage. And it, this was really not um, very, it was quite anti-Calvinist. He wanted a more elaborate form of Protestantism with some ritual and music and that kind of thing, which is very un-Calvinist in tone. And he wanted to impose this really on the Scots, who, you know, the Scots Presbyterians, who um, had a very sort of Calvinist tradition. And so they rebelled against this and they won and, and he lost. And then he had to call Parliament, having not had a Parliament for 11 years, which I may say was nothing to do with Henrietta Maria. And this parliament was extremely angry about, um, obviously, the, the, the um, fact that he had ruled without a parliament for 11 years. And they began stripping him of power and of his chosen ministers. And it was at that point that Henrietta Maria stepped up to try and help her husband. He was short of advice. He was short of help. And she went on doing so through the Civil War and gave um, and was extremely impressive. And, in, and indeed, uh, the, the king's enemies said that um, he would never have been able to put himself in a position to resist without her help and support. So certainly she was an extremely uh, effective uh, partner, um, but she wasn't wearing the breeches. She often... You know, she had to go along with his with his decisions, um, at least one of which she believed cost him the Civil War. What role did she actually play during the Civil War? First of all, she was in Holland during the build-up to the Civil War, the months preceding the Civil War and in the early months of the Civil War. And during that, she used that to raise uh, money and arms uh, for Charles. Most people believed that he would be beaten soundly in the first 
major battle of the Civil War, and he wasn't, and both friends and enemies um, agreed that this was largely down to Henrietta Maria, who saved his uh, bacon by um, uh, raising arms and sending it back to England uh, for him. When she returned to England, she was very helpful in, in many ways. Many ways, um, She managed to uh, encourage defectors, including senior parliamentarian commanders. She gave a lot of good advice. Uh, Prince Rupert, with whom she quarrelled early on when she arrived in England, uh, was, was then extremely upset when she left to return to France because he grew uh, to respect her and respect who she was and her advice. People believed that she was... Firmer and more reliable. She was more reliable than Charles. How did she continue to support the royalist cause after Charles surrendered? Uh, she tried several things. First of all, she tried to encourage Charles to come to terms with his various jailers. First, the Scots, then then Parliament, and then the New Model Army. Uh, when all that failed, she was in France at this time. She then supported efforts to raise, you know, for the Second Civil War that took place. When that was lost, the bitterness was such that Charles was tried as a man of blood and um, executed, as we know. And of course, this had a devastating effect on Henrietta Maria. Uh, but she remembered, you know, Charles had written to her saying, you mustn't, she wanted to retire at that stage. She wanted to sort of retire to a convent, understandably, and sort of just hide herself away. But Charles had said to her, you're vital to my cause and, you know, you're vital to what happens to the children and you, you, you mustn't do any such thing, um, which she'd already been threatening to do because he wasn't paying any attention to her advice to, to, to come to terms with his captors. So she did continue to support the royalist cause. She was changed, I think. She um, was much sort of angrier because she believed that Charles's death... She couldn't blame her husband for his own demise, and so she said it must be down to the sort of sins of Henry the Henry VIII, and that made her much more sort of conscious, again, of her religious faith than she wanted her sort of ladies-in-waiting, the people around her, to convert. Some did, some didn't. And she took on as a new persona, really. A, a new... Uh, again, she used Catholic imagery. She used the imagery of the Virgin, the Queen of Sorrows, who I, I, which some of you, if you go abroad, particularly you don't see it so often in England, you'll see images in Catholic churches of, of, of the Virgin Mary with swords through her heart. And she took on this imagery, calling herself a sort of, you know, queen of, queen of sorrows, really, um, because it is something that appeals to anyone who has suffered, that they feel connection to another woman who has suffered. And it also, she hoped, would make um, the Catholic royals around her um, feel guilty that they weren't doing more to help Charles. And so sometimes she sort of perceived as, she, as if she's just some sort of sad woman dressed in black. But actually, you need to think of it more like the Princess of Wales after her divorce. You know, it's a very powerful, moving image. Diana Princess of Wales projected, again, this image of, you know, a suffering woman, but also a very sort of glamorous woman that understood the suffering of others all around her, even though she might be sort of, you know, in the case of Diana, Princess of Wales, you know, she was, you know, dressed in expensive, fashionable clothes and she was a princess and so forth. But nevertheless, people, a lot of people felt a great connection with her as someone who suffered. 
Um, and the same, and this was also true of Henrietta Maria. She used her diplomatic skills to, you know, to, to try and keep the royalist cause alive and still went on raising money for her son, Charles II. She never gave up. What was her part to play after the subsequent restoration? Ah, well, this is another sort of very interesting thing. So I think because, again, you know, she is supposed to be the sort of classic witch Eve. Um, and so, of course, this being the case, you can't, she can't be allowed to um, have any, you know, reflected glory from the restoration. So, oh, yes, her son Charles II has been restored, but we mustn't think of her as sort of in any way... You know, obviously, because she's just the sad, evil old crone and must now be exposed as the, as the, as the terrible witch behind the, the face of the seductress. And so people quote, endlessly quote, um, the diarist uh, Samuel Pepys's first description of her when she, uh, when she arrives back uh, in 1660, when, you know, two of her children die, two of her children die. So she's not feeling at her best as you might imagine. And he says, oh, she's looking very ordinary. She's dressed in black and she looks very ordinary. Um, They don't quote uh, um, Samuel Pepys writing two years later, saying, oh, my God, wow, you know, she has the greatest court. Um, It's merrier than that of, you know, Charles II. It's by far the jolliest and the most fun and amusing. And, you know, and Henrietta Maria is herself saying she's, you know, as happy as she's ever been, and um, she's also still a sort of powerful and influential figure, both in England and in France. Um, but all this is sort of forgotten. This is her, the Phoenix Queen. She rises from the ashes of the Civil War. She's rebuilding her chapel at Somerset House. She's re-engaged in many of the things that she was doing um, before the Civil War. Um, and in France, her nephew, Louis Fourteenth is turning to her for advice and support in trying to make peace uh, with Charles II in England. To tie together what we've been talking about, can I just ask you, how complex was the role of royal consort at this time? It wasn't easy. And uh, one of the things that um, I enjoyed, I've enjoyed very much um, looking at in this book, and I hope readers will enjoy, is... um, that I look at her mother, who was an extraordinary woman, who was, of course, a consort, came from Italy, and her two sisters, uh, Christine, who became Duchess of Savoy, and Elizabeth, who became Queen of Spain. Um, And the similar problems they faced and how they dealt with it. I think the problem was when you went, so you were taken, you went off, you were sent off to a foreign country, as a kind of gift, but you were also from one, you know, one family to another. But you were seen also as a kind of potential Trojan horse when you arrived, because you'd come from one power to another, and um, so people wondered whether you were going to be, as a consort, were you going to be truly loyal to your husband or to your father's family? So there was always that problem. They had problems with uh, favourites. Uh, uh, both Marie de Medici was, you know, her regency was overthrown with the help of a favourite of her son's and she was um, put into internal exile. Elizabeth, who became Queen of Spain, also had terrible problems with a favourite uh, who accused her, essentially put around rumours saying that she was committing adultery, which is something Queen Consorts were always being accused of, and Henrietta Maria as well, um, and um, that she was lame, 
This is really, again, connected to the idea of them being witches because you look superficially beautiful, but, you know, really there's the hag, the evil witch hag is, is just beneath the surface, of course. And so this is revealed in, say, for example, Anne Boleyn's sixth finger, or in the case of Elizabeth, you know, her supposedly being, you know, having, having a, a leg that was, was, was lame. And there were rival sources of power to favourite, so they had that problem. Um, and then, of course, um, it was about power and the kind of power they could wield. And interestingly, all of these women had to deal with civil wars, not just Henrietta. So that's quite interesting, seeing how that happens. Her sister Christine, uh, who was regent for her tiny son, had to face wars in Savoy and was a great enemy of Cardinal Richelieu, often, um, as indeed was Henrietta Maria and her mother. Elizabeth in Spain, similarly her husband, Philip IV, faced you know, rebellions, and she was made regent. Interestingly, they were all regents. All regents wielded power as regents, with the exception of Henrietta, uh, the one who is always accused of you know, having too much power. She was never made regent by Charles, um, ever. Um, as as Philip IV did with Elizabeth. And, and I think the, the similarities and the differences in their experiences are important and very interesting and understudied. How much influence did Henrietta Maria take from these other women around her? I, do, I don't think she was so much influenced by her sister because they were all married pathetically young. I mean, they were all married as children and were separated as children. Um, so I suppose the greatest influence was her mother, although not in every respect. She was, you know, she'd so, for example, Marie de Medici wanted a friendship with the Habsburgs, whereas Henri- Henrietta was always very sort of anti-Habsburg. Um, but she certainly was very influenced by her mother in, 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 in you know, as a, as, a, as a patron of art and architecture, and so far as she could be, which is on a very small scale compared to her mother, because Charles didn't have, enough, didn't have that much money. Um, but also in the feeling that, you know, a mother of a particular of a teenage boy or, um, ha, you know, had, had, had a right to say something. I mean, so teenage boys, of course, feel they're grown up and should be, have, you know, get on with, get on with, you know, being kings or princes or whatever. Um, whereas um, Henrietta and her mother both felt that they, their sons should be listening to them as well and not just to their ministers and were quite kind of... <laughs> firm about that um so yes yeah um and and I suppose she saw her mother as a, as a widow as well and that would have influenced her you've spoken there about her patronage of the art could you perhaps shine a light on this side of her yes I, well it, interestingly you know her mother brought the, these uh these little girls up um as I said to they were taught by professional actors, some of the best in Europe, in how to move and stand and speak on stage, because, of course, they would be performing on the stage of public life. Um, but also, I suppose they learned that you could project ideas on the stage, you could project, um, you could create a sort of culture, a cultural environment. And they were encouraged not only to perform, but also to, 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 to act as sort of producers, and again, it's, it was about giving women a voice, that women had the right to their own conscience, um, their own views, and they had the right to a voice. And I think this was actually very influential in England. So although she was eventually prevented from speaking on stage, Charles, I think, put an end to it after it was attacked um, 
um, by um, English Puritans. The English stage increasingly had women performing and um, increasingly had central characters who were women. And I think the idea that women had a right to an opinion and to express an opinion developed uh, during this period before the Civil War. And of course, it wasn't just royalist women, parliamentarian women, but I think many of them, ironically, had been influenced by, you know, this, this sort of new cultural environment that Henrietta was encouraging. In your book, you note how Henrietta Maria herself was seen as this cruel and bigoted mother. What was her relationship actually like with her family? I think her children all adored her, actually. Um, Henry less so, um, but that was because, of course, poor little Henry was a, was a tiny child when the Civil War broke out uh, and was, uh, was in Parliament's care throughout the Civil War. Um, and so they were strangers to each other when he was finally released uh, into you know, from Parliament's care, from Oliver Cromwell's care at that point, um, um, and and allowed to go to his mother in France. I think from memory he was about twelve by then, thirteen, twelve. Um, now, as I mentioned to you uh, earlier, um, I think first of all. Of course, she'd had the tremendous shock of Charles's death. Um, and um, so that sort of made her feel much less positive about um, um, Protestants in general, I think. But with Henry, the fact was that, that, that Charles II's position was incredibly weak. He wasn't really getting any support from France or Spain or anywhere. The whole thing was a disaster. You know, he tried, you know, he had some support from the Scots and then that all fell apart. And the whole thing was a you know, complete disaster. And, you know, it really didn't look like they were going to get anywhere, frankly. And uh, so she thought, well, son number three, as he was, Henry, um, if he becomes a Catholic... Um, then he will be able to marry somebody rich, so he'll have some money. Um, the Pope can make him a cardinal. You can be made a cardinal without even being a priest, so he'll have power, he'll have influence, so it'll just be much easier and better for him. Also, Charles was trying to sort of encourage the Catholic powers to believe that he would offer freedom of religion for Catholics if he became king, and he was doing that because he needed their support. And so this would demonstrate... This would demonstrate that if he allowed Henry to become a Catholic. And this is why she wanted him to become one. So it wasn't simply sort of because she was a sort of, you know, um, being a terrible bigot. There was actually practical reasons for it. Um, and she was very angry when he disobeyed her and said, OK, I'm never going to speak to you again. I will not speak to you. You're sort of off you go. You're dead to me now. Um but then again, this was not an unusual thing to do. So Charles I's sister, the Winter Queen, did exactly the same uh, with her children, uh, two of whom at least uh, converted to Catholicism. And um, she didn't talk to them either, particularly her daughter, I don't think she ever spoke to again, um, who became a, a nun, I think, from memory. Um, so, and, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, is, is that you could not afford she could not afford, and nor could um, the Winter Queen, they could not afford to be seen as weak, to have their children disobeying them. Because, you know, they needed people to invest in them, to invest in the Stuarts, in the case of Henrietta, and invest in her son. And so they, and, um, you know, she, she could not ha go around having son number three 
disobeying her. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, Henry did so, of course, because, you know, the, not only, he'd, you know, obviously he'd been brought up a Protestant and um, his, you know, he had been with his father just before his father was executed. Um, and, you know, his father had died, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a, a Protestant of the Church of England and had said to his children, you know, you must, you know, be true to the Protestant faith and to the faith of the Church of England and, you know, obey your mother and all things, but not in religion. And um, so that was really never going to happen. And I think the real tragedy is, is that she writes about Henry was when he goes to fight later in Europe. Um, um, you know, she worries about him as she worries also about James, who's also fighting. She worries about these two boys. And then she's very much, she writes about how she's very much looking forward to seeing them all united when they, when after Charles II is restored. And she's, you know, she says this and then he dies. And um, she's obviously devastated by it, as 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 many people record. Um, and of course, and she writes about her, her her sadness to, for example, her sister Christine. So to say that she was unloving and bigoted is is untrue. And when you read about her own, you know, death and how Charles II, for example, reacts, it's with great distress. With such an overwhelmingly negative legacy, what positives do you think came from Henrietta Maria's life? Um, well, I think she she encouraged a sort of French influence um, at court, um, which, for example, encouraged the art of conversation, which not everyone approved of at all. Um, con- witty conversation was very much a, a, a part of French court society. Um, and I think one of, it's one of Charles II's courtiers complains about this sort of terrible, sort of hideous sort of French legacy of talking. Um, and uh, so, so, so she sort of encouraged, I suppose, amusing conversation, good food, theatre, beautiful things. I think that's all a positive um, legacy. I think she's an example of courage, of love. And, you know, I was just thinking again what we were talking about, about her quarrels with Henry. And she didn't just quarrel with Henry. She quarreled with, you know, most of her children at some point. You know, when you quarrel with people, doesn't mean you don't love each other. I think lots of families quarrel about all sorts of things. They quarrel with their mothers and fathers and siblings. How do you think Henrietta Maria should be seen now? I think we should try and see Henrietta Maria now on her own terms, through her eyes um, and the way that things played out for her. Um, She's been looked at far too much through the sort of male gaze. And I think it's time to look at another perspective, really. This is is a woman who had strengths and weaknesses, as we all do. and, And I think it's an opportunity for us to discover the life, the real life of a, of a fascinating woman who, who's, who's been sort of turned into this sort of absurd sort of cartoon. This is an opportunity so that's, to, to, to look at this woman and, and, and discover a more rounded human being than we have seen hitherto. That was Leander Delisle. Her book, Henrietta Maria, Conspirator, Warrior, Phoenix Queen is out now, published by Chateau and Windus. You can also read Leander's article on Henrietta's legacy in the September 2022 issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale until the end of the month. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer-Arden. 
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.